The Dry Divide by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1963. We're on chapter 15, On Our Way to Heligoland. Father, thank you that I get to um, have time here in Alabama to read and to enjoy uh, the opportunity to to speak words that can be heard by the family members uh, and friends that are listening. I pray that you uh, give us joyful ears. Let us enjoy uh, hearing what happened just over 100 years ago and um, be blessed uh, to think about how our lives are unfolding in our story. In Jesus' name, amen. Although we hadn't hauled a single bushel of wheat, we had a celebration the evening we ran first ran the gulch. After supper, Judy boiled a big saucepan of taffy, and as soon as it had cooled enough to handle, Mrs. Hudson, the children, and all the rest of us buttered our hands and took turns pulling it. That sounds fun. And as we pulled and snipped it into pieces with a pair of scissors, we sang all the old songs we could think of. Maybe the music wasn't very good, but the fun was. Before we turned in, Doc, Jikus, and Paco filled, seed, uh, filled feed sacks for the next day, while Gus, Lars, Old Bill, and I talked about the horses and the runs we were going to make through the gulches. We all knew it would be a dangerous business, but we all thought our little Mustangs were sure-footed enough to make the risk reasonable. There would always be two big dangers, one that a horse would slip or stumble on a downhill run, the other that a wagon would stall on a steep uphill pull that the brakes might not hold and that it would run backwards, dragging the horses off their feet. Although horses were seldom shod in that stoneless country, and though there was little possibility that any one of ours had even had its hoofs trimmed, we decided it would be safest to shoe the whole string. Well-fitted shoes would make them lift their feet higher, cutting down the chance of a stumble. If made with cocks, the shoes would eliminate any chance of slipping and we could, and would give a team a much better chance of holding a stalled load until the wheels could be trigged. A trig means to put a block under the wheels so that uh, the brake wasn't doing all the holding of the um, weight. Then, too, we were going to give our horses a tremendous amount of road work, and the shoes would be the best insurance against lameness. <laughs> Monday morning, Judy drove Gus to Oberlin for shoes, nails, and farrier's tools. Lars fired up the forge, and the rest of us harnessed for our first hauling job. It was from the DeMay place, only five miles from town and the thrashing rig being used was rated at a 1,000 bushels a day. With the distance being so short, Bill and Paco could probably have handled the whole job, but I'd promised Doc that he should haul the first load, and I wanted Jikus to get more experience in driving a team. <clears throat> I had him sweep the dirt out of the rigs we'd used for practicing, disconnect the trailer from one of them, and hitch the old mares to the front wagon. By the time he'd finished, Doc, Bill, and Paco were ready to go. So I saddled Kitten and led my little caravan off to the wars. I don't know how proud Napoleon might have been when he led his army forth to battle, but I'll bet I could have matched him. Old Kitten seemed to catch the spirit of the occasion. She bobbed her head, pranced, and sidestepped as we pulled out of the yard and onto the roadway. Ever since the 4th of July, we'd been at work by sunup, and I was a little over-anxious about getting started that morning. It couldn't have been later than 6 o'clock when we reached the DeMay place. The thrashing rig was in place with a long conveyor wedged between two wheat stacks and the longer belt stretched between the separator and the flywheel of the engine, but the fire under the boiler was still banked and there was no one in sight. I had Doc set his lead wagon under the grain spout, then took Jikus on to the long hill 
that we'd have to pull three miles before reaching town. With three rigs on the job, there was no need for the old mares and helping loaded rigs out of the field. That could be done by one of the other snap teams. Even with the old mares and a single empty wagon, Jaikus nearly panicked when we reached the brink of the big gulch. He wanted to climb down, lead kitten, and have me drive the wagon through. <laughs> that would have completely ruined him for any use with horses. What he needed was to gain a little confidence, and that gulch was the best place for him to gain. Gain it. No, you're going to do your own driving, I told him. <clears throat> Put your foot on the brake. Push it down just enough to keep the wagon from running down on the mares too hard. They've probably been through here a hundred times, so you won't have to worry about driving them. Just hold them back enough to keep them out of a trot. I'll ride right beside you to give you any help you need. With a doubt, without a doubt, it took more courage for Jaikas to make his drive through the gulch than for any of the rest of us. All the way to the bottom, he had his teeth clamped tighter than a clamshell. The reins hauled taut as a fiddle string, and his foot braced against the brake pedal so hard the team had to keep the traces tight. He didn't release the brake until they'd started up the far side, then lead forward as though he were a jockey making his bid in the home stretch. <laughs> Fish at the rein as if he were trying to push with them, and kept shouting, Get up! Get up! at the top of his voice. The old mares paid no more attention to Jaikus than if he hadn't been there, <clears throat> and walked through the gulch as if they'd been on their way to pasture. But Jaikus was elated when he reached the hilltop. Fine job, I told him. A man that can drive through that gulch can drive anywhere. Next time, don't pull on the reins quite so hard. It doesn't help and would make your horse's mouth sore. At the foot of the long grade, I had Jaikus unhitched, slip the bits from the mare's mouths, and empty his feet, sack of feed at the back of the wagon so they could munch as they waited for loads to come along. There was no more need of Jaikus being there than there been, have been for a piano player, but he felt that he had a very important job. He assured me that I had no worry in the whole blessed world that he wouldn't let a single load get stuck on that hill. By the time I got back to the DeMay place, the engineer had the fire under the boiler roaring and was building up a head of steam. Right at 7 o'clock, the crew drove into the field in a couple of old flivers. The pitchers shinned to the top of the stacks, and Grandpa George Wilson climbed atop the thrashing separator. At a wave of his arm, <clears throat> the engineer opened the throttle. Bit by bit, the flywheel began to turn slowly. The wide power belt moved like a long, thin stream of flowing syrup. A dozen or so pulleys, belts, and gears on the separator were set in motion, and the thrashing season had begun. As the engineer opened the throttle wider, the pulleys, belts, and gears turned faster. The beaters in the maw fed by the conveyor set up a clattering din. The whole machine shimmied and shook, and our little Mustangs went crazy. Doc and I were able to hold and quiet his team, but Bills and Pacos stampeded. With any less skillful men at the reins, they would certainly have run away. But both drivers kept them in a wide circle until they had become used to their uproar and were willing to stand quietly. When Doc's wagons were loaded, Paco hitched on his snap team to help pull the loads out of the field, and old Bill drove his lead wagon under the grain spout. I rode beside Doc's wagons all the way to the elevator. Not that I was afraid to trust him alone, but to be on hand if he had any trouble. He didn't have a particle though I doubt that he could have pulled another five bushels out of the deep gulch. At the foot of the long grade, Jaikas hitched his mares on, pushed proudly on the range as he walked beside them, and made the pull to the hilltop an easy one. At the steep pitch down to the valley, I had Doc set his brakes hard and keep his horses at a walk. At the elevator, they danced a bit when the trap was tilted and the loads dumped, but not enough that he couldn't have handled them alone. 
With plenty of wagons, I held the loads down to 50 bushels each, then rode along with old Bill and Paco on their first trips, but it wasn't necessary. Both went through the big gulch on the fly, took their loads down the pitch to the valley at a slow trot, and had no more trouble than was to be expected when the loads were dumped at the elevator. All there was for me to do was to introduce my men to the scalemen and show them how to weigh their loads in and in and their empty wagons out. As soon as Paco's wagons had been weighed out, I gave Kitten a free rein, and she took me back to the Hudson Place at a steady lope. When I got there, I found Gus and Lars with both hands full. Our little Mustangs weren't in favor of being shod, and they weren't backward about making their feelings known. Lars's wheelers had already been shod when I rode into the yard, but his snap team showed no inclination to suffer any such indignity. Gus was trying to hold one of them by a twitch on his upper lip, while Lars held, had a hind leg cradled over his thigh and was trying to trim the hoof. But even the pain of the twitch wasn't enough to keep the little bronc from fighting. Both men weighed well over 200 pounds apiece, and the Mustang was no more than seven, but he was more than holding his own. I had just unsaddled Kitten and turned her into the crowd when I heard a thump. I looked around to see the bronc struggling to get up from the ground. Sit on his head so he can't get up, I called to Gus. I'll be right there with a soft rope. When I was a kid on the ranches, I'd learned to hogtie calves from Branding, and it seemed to me that might be the best way to shoe our Mustangs. When a horse finds that a man has put him into a helpless position, particularly if he has his head held down, he has too much intelligence to fight. Then, too, if he isn't hurt while he's down, his fear drains away, though he may become panicked with fear when he, while he has his legs under him. With the bronc already down, it took only a minute to toss the loop around his forelegs, flip the slack around his hind pasterns, pull them together, and lash them tight. From there, the bronc was easy as, as easy to shoe as an old plow horse. But Gus and Lars had to hurry right along. It isn't good business to keep any horse, let alone a bronco, tied down too long. We didn't try to shoe any of the other horses while standing. Either Gus or Lars could simply set up a set of shoes that would come close to fitting, simply from sizing up a standing horse's hoofs. I'd lead a horse out of the crowd, they'd look him over and make up the shoes, then we'd throw and tie him. While I held his head down, they'd trim the hooves, burn the hot shoes into place, douse them in cold water, and nail them on. Once in a while, they had to reshape a shoe, but not very often. As each horse was led up with his new shoes on, he'd take a few cautious steps, lifting each foot high, like a hen walking in mud. But he'd quickly become used to the added weight, and his gait would be only a little higher than when barefooted. I didn't put them back into in the corral after they were shod, but tied each one to a wagon wheel and brought him a forkful feed. Shoes on a Mustang are like brass knuckles on a professional boxer, and if there are cocks on the shoes, they'll cut like cleavers. Cocks, I think, are like um, spikes, like um, you know, uh, traction traction things to them. Until my Bronx had been worked down for a few days. I couldn't risk another battle royale. By trading horses around, we finished our shoeing at noon on Tuesday, just as Ted Harmon pulled his big thrashing rig onto the Hudson Place. Right after dinner, I sent Gus and Lars to haul from the DeMay Place and had old Bill ride with each of them to be sure they would have no trouble on the steep pitch down to the valley or in unloading and weighing at the elevator. Then, while Harmon and his crew readied their rig for an early start Wednesday morning, Judy drove me to make my final arrangements for going into full swing at the hauling business. It was after dark before we sat down to supper that night, but we were as nearly ready as possible, and I'd hired one more wagon and driver than we should need so as to give us a margin of safety. A load of horse feed 
have been piled by the roadside at the foot of both long upgrades. A double load hauled to the Demay place, and Lars had an extra coupler ready for making a spare tandem rig for, from two of the hired wagons. I had hired five teams of heavy horses, five wagons, and three drivers. One of the men was to bring his rig directly to the Hudson place at 7 o'clock. The other two would stop to leave a tote team at the foot of the upgrades, then bring the spare wagons along to be used as part of a tandem rig. It's amazing to me reading about this, all the horses it took to get everything pulled and done. When we'd finished eating, I said, let's go over the whole setup again so we won't get crossed up any more than we can help. Doc, I'm going to put you in charge of the DeMay job. Don't try to haul more than 50 bushels to each wagon, and I don't believe you'll have a bit of trouble in making four trips a day. The rest of us will haul two double loads a day from here and one from the DeMay place. I'll take one load in for you at 9.20. Paco will take his at 11.30. Lars at 1.45. Then Bill will pick up one will pick one up at four o'clock and Gus will be along a few minutes after five. Tomorrow morning I'll start off with you and bring along one of the hired rigs. From then on I'll haul the last two loads from here each day, letting the last one sit in the field overnight and hauling it before the thrashers start next morning. That will give me time in the middle of the day for whatever running around I have to do. We'll let the hired rigs take the first two loads thrashed here each morning, because they'll be the slowest on the roads. You'll take the next one, Bill, then Paco, and Gus, and Lars. By that time, the hired teams will be back here to take a load apiece. And with the thrashing crew taking an hour for dinner, they won't have another double load ready to go before 1.30. That will give Bill plenty of time to get back here, eat his dinner, and start the second go-round. To save mileage on the horses, we won't bring any of them to the corral at night, but feed and groom them at the rigs, haltering them to the front and back wheels, where they'll be far enough apart that they can't kick each other. On my last trip, I'll bring in the tote horses, leaving one team at the DeMay place and bringing the others here. And that way, we'll have the higher teams free during the latter part of the afternoon to take care of any tight spots we may run into. <clears throat> Judy, you'll be the busiest one in the crew. With Thrasher's Hero, you'll have to give your sis a lot of help with the cooking, and you'll have to drive the wheels off the old Maxwell. No two of us will go to work, get done, and eat or, or eat our dinners at the same time. You have to take us out to the rigs every morning, fetch each one his grub whenever he has time to eat in the middle of the day, and bring each one back here when he's finished with his last load. Besides that, it will be your job to keep us in fresh meat and groceries, to be the troubleshooter on the roads, so as to watch that we all stay on schedule. If this thing works as tight as, tight as I've got it set up, We'll just about have to run on a timetable to keep pace with the two thrashing rigs. Let's turn in early and be ready to knock the heligo out of the hauling business when morning comes. Although neither rig would begin thrashing before 7 o'clock, we were all harnessed and ready to go by 6. But Lars wanted to take his first load until 11, so I told him to couple the two wagons from the tote teams together and take them to the DeMay place as soon as they were ready. Then I left Bill in charge at the Hudson place and went with Doc to the the DeMay job, where one of the hired haulers was to meet us at 7. He was there a little before time, and so were Grandpa George and his crew. Right at 7 o'clock, a golden stream of wheat began pouring into Doc's lead wagon. By 8, he had started away for the elevator. I pulled my wagons under the grain spout as he pulled out, 
and when Lars brought the extra rig, Grandpa George had him set it on the opposite side of the machine, ready to catch grain when my rig was loaded. As soon as Judy had come to take Lars back, I climbed onto the separator and shouted to Grandpa George above the clatter, telling him to load Doc's wagon with only 50 bushels apiece, but to give the rest of us 60 bushel loads. He looked at me as though I'd lost my senses and shouted back, Ain't you been over the roads yet, boy? I doubt you can make it with a hundred to a double load. Not with them little ponies. It would take six stout horses to pull 120 bushels out of them gulches. I'm going to risk it, I shouted back. I've got two heavy tote teams along the road to pull us out if we get stuck. Grandpa George reached down and reset the gong on the tally registers to strike at 60 instead of 50. But he was still, still shaking his head when I climbed down. The golden stream of grain poured from the spout without a moment's let-up and kept me busy spreading the load evenly in the wagon. When I heard the gong strike, I held my shovel tight against the end of the spout and swung it back to the, other, to the trailer. It was just 9.20 by Grandpa George's watch when the gong struck again, and he switched the stream to the empty wagon. I'd run the big gulch, hooked on the tote team, and was halfway up the long hill when I met Doc coming back with his empty rig. As we passed, we both bawled, Yep, we're on our way to Heligoland, but neither of us stopped. In every spare minute I'd been able to find during the past couple of days, I'd been harnessing my teams, driving them out to the first corner, and giving them a little more practice in making the turns. They'd improved considerably, but still weren't very handy. And I had five corners to turn as I came down from the divide <coughs> through the village and pulled in at the elevator. I expected a little trouble on those corners and had it, but it was nothing to the excitement I had going down the main street of the town. My little leaders seemed to have a deep little leaders seemed to have a deep distrust of urban environment and were violent in their protests against my efforts to force them into it. Several times in trying to turn back, they doubled around so far I could look them in the faces. Only their fear of the black snake kept them straightened around where they belonged, and I often had to pop the cracker within an inch or two of their heads. Um, it must have taken me a full 15 minutes to run that one block gauntlet, and the tracks of my wagon wheels looked as if they'd been left by squirming angleworms. <laughs> to help things along, Bones came out of the bank when I was in the thickest of the battle and shouted, How are you getting along, son? I couldn't trust myself to answer him. I had a little more trouble in convincing my snap team that the driveway through the elevator wasn't the road to perdition. <laughs> but once they'd passed over it, it seemed they accepted their fate. Uh, though they kept turning their heads from side to side, looking for something to spook at, they tried to ride, trotted right along as I drove them back through town. we just passed the church and started up the steep climb from the valley when we met Paco coming down. Gus was hitching on his second tote team three and a half miles from town when I passed him. When I came to the sharp rise just before reaching the Hudson Place, Jikus was unhitching the old mares after giving Lars a pull out of the field. At each passing, we shouted that we weren't going to knock the Heligo out of Heligoland, that we were going to, but I didn't stop. There was no room in our schedule for visiting. It was 11.30 when I pulled up at the thrashing rig with my next load not due until out until five o'clock, I unharnessed my horses, fed them, and had the engineer give them three toots on his whistle, the call uh, for Judy to come with the Maxwell. She must have driven me at least 100 miles between then, then and five o'clock, carrying dinner buckets, checking loads on the road, and going to Overland for six $2 watches. Gus and Lars had gold watches, 
so I didn't buy any for them. Of course, Dicus didn't need one, but I didn't want him to feel left out, and the rest of us just about had to have them. <laughs> My schedule was so tight that the thrashers would have had to stop their machines if we'd fallen off as much as 15 minutes behind time. But that wasn't the main reason for my buying the watches. It was just the opposite. Everyone was so over-anxious that he was hurrying his horses too much and not giving them enough time to rest after hard pulls. That kind of driving will break horses down much quicker than overloading or excessive mileage, and I had to guard against it. That's a pretty cool idea. To spare our horses as much as possible, each run had to be so accurately timed that a round trip wouldn't vary by more than five minutes. If a man lost time on the way to town, or if he had to wait at the elevator, he can make up for it on his way back with empty wagons. But there was no sense in wearing the teams down by getting back 15 or 20 minutes too early. And the men needed watches for timing themselves. Judy needed one as badly as the rest of us, for part of her job was to keep a check on all hands <coughs> and to bring me any word of any trouble or falling behind schedule. It is seldom that a new and closely scheduled job runs smoothly on its first day, and is almost never that um, that two such jobs can be dovetailed together and still run smoothly. But ours did. Neither thrashing, thrashing rig had a minutes breakdown all day. Both turned out their full capacity of grain, and there was never a time when we didn't have wagons waiting to catch it. My greatest trouble was to keep the crew from rushing too much or from failing to give the horses long enough rest after hard pulls. At five minutes past five, I pulled away from the rig on the Hudson Place with the last load to be hauled for the day. Though there would be another one thrashed, it would sit in the field until I hauled it away at 7 o'clock the next morning. With mine being the last load, there was no need for me to hurry. I ran the gulches fast, but gave my horses long rests on the far side, and others after pulling, um, and others after pulling each of the long upgrades. It was quarter of 7 before I reached Cedar Bluffs. The stores were all closed. There was no one on the street, and my little leaders went down it without the slightest bobble. After my loads had been dumped and my empty wagons weighed, I waited for Doc to bring in the last load from the DeMay place. He came in right at 7 o'clock and was weighed out by 7.10, but the scale man was a little annoyed. 7 was closing time for the elevator, and he was a bit grumpy about being kept over time. All it took to keep him happy was to tell him we'd let the last load from the DeMay place sit in the field overnight and Doc would bring it in at 7 in the morning instead of 7 at night. It really made an easier day for Doc. On the new schedule, he'd pull his load out at 6 in the morning, and we'd, all finish, be, and we'd be all finished for the day by half past 3. Although the tally registers on the thrashing machines were fairly accurate, they measured by volume and were only a guide to go by in loading. At the elevator, the measure was entirely by weight, and it, I would be paid in accordance with the elevator tally. Before the wheat was dumped into the pit, an exactly measured sample was taken from each wagon, weighed in a tester, and examined for grade. If the kernels were small and shriveled, the tester might show that it ran no more than 54 or 5 pounds to the volume bushel, while exceptionally good grain might run as high as 64 or 5. And regardless of bulk, 60 pounds was counted as a bushel. After Doc's wagons had been weighed out, the scale man gave me our tally for the day, and, I and it totaled 2,305 bushels. 1,270 from the Hudson Place, and 1,010 from Grandpa George's rig. On the way, Doc led the first tote team on to the Demay Place for the night, and I led the second one on to the Hudson Place. I had barely had the horses unharnessed, tied to the wagon wheels, and fed before Judy stopped to pick me up on her way home with Doc. 
Though the thrashing crew had long since eaten supper and gone home, my whole crew had waited so we could eat together. That's really cool. It was one of the best evenings we'd ever had. More like a celebration than supper. And when we sang, we're on our way to Heligoland, we could have been heard from a mile away. It's a lot of camaraderie in that group. After all they've been through, they did it together. Okay, I love you guys. Have a great rest of your day.